0: You this morning what I've studied. It's its going to seem kind of like it was out of left field, um, but it's been a really interesting study for me, and I hope that you enjoy what we talk about this morning. Before we get to that, though, I want to use an illustration to start kind of our thoughts and get us thinking about this. And I want you to go back 33 years to, to the year 1990. And I don't know if that was a good year or bad year for you. I don't know if you were even born at that point, but I want you to Imagine that you're the age that you are now back in 1990. And I want you to imagine that you have worked hard, you have saved hard, you've sacrificed, you've been through a lot and you're really trying to save up and you finally saved $100,000. And you've got $100,000 and you feel really wealthy with that. And you go to your financial advisor and you say, I've worked really hard for this money, I want to invest it. And so you give him your $100,000 and he invests it. And every year, you get one of these returns back. And every year, you're making, you're making 10% on your $100,000. And you just watch that climb and climb and climb. And 10% is really good. And, and every year, you're making 10%. Starting in 1990, you make $100,000. And as soon as you look or turn around, it's $200,000 and more than that. In 10 years, it's $300,000. You've tripled your money. Fast forward another seven years, so 17 years since your investment, you're, you've made $700,000 in the year 2007. You were really wealthy in, in 1990. Now you're really, really wealthy. And, and you're thinking, wow, I've, I've made it. Like, I am, I am wealthy, wealthy, wealthy. Life is going good. And then you look in the Wall Street Journal, and you read this story about Bernie Madoff. And if you remember Bernie Madoff, he was this big-time investor... Who, who worked and was a board member of the NASDAQ, and everybody trusted this guy, turns out he was the head of the biggest Ponzi scheme in history. $50 billion was lost, and the whole time he's promising that he's making all this money for people, turns out it was a fraud. And you go to get your $700,000 that you've invested, and turns out there was nothing there never was any money ever invested. A single stock was never purchased with this. It was all a fraud. All that hope, all that trust that you had was misplaced. It was gone. The money was imaginary. The stocks were imaginary. The hope, the promise was imaginary. All the confidence, all the savings, it's all gone. You're broke. All these people lost millions and billions of dollars and that's essentially our setting for the book of Obadiah. Obadiah is a, a, a book about a prophet who writes to the Edomites, people that were not children of God, to this, this nation outside of Israel. And these people thought they had made it. They thought they were something. They, they were so prideful. They were arrogant. They thought that, that no one could touch them. They thought they couldn't be destroyed by anybody. But their hope was misplaced. Their hope was imaginary. God writes this letter, or through the prophet Obadiah, prophesies that you're about to be destroyed. You're about to meet destruction. You have no hope. And you've probably seen Edom, uh, the, the kingdom of Edom all along. You've probably read about it in the Old Testament, even if you haven't realized that you've done that. But Edom is a nation that shares the borders with the Israelites. And the kingdom of Judah specifically, as we move through time, but it's been there all along. Um, and anytime you pull up a map, it's right there in the, the very southern part. But there's, they're not just neighbors. Edom and Israel aren't just neighbors. But there's tremendous history behind these two different nations. And I want to look at that real quick. So we're going to go back um, to the year 2000 B.C., so about 1,500 years before the book of Obadiah is actually written. And we're going to kind of learn some history behind these two, behind these two nations. And you, you remember Abraham and Sarah, they had a son named Isaac, Isaac and Rebekah, they had a, two sons, firstborn being Esau, secondborn being uh, Jacob, and the firstborn back in this time was where all the hope lied. That's the promise was given to, to the firstborn, the blessing was given to the firstborn, and it may not seem fair to us, but that's just how it was done. If you were the firstborn, you were going to inherit everything of your, of your father's. And the secondborn, sorry, you're left with nothing. That's just how it was. And we go back to Genesis chapter 25 and 27, and there's this very tense relationship between these two brothers. And and if you remember, um, Jacob ends up purchasing this uh, birthright from Esau, uh, this blessing from Esau, for just some, some stew and some bread. And he receives that blessing years later when Jacob is, is about to pass, when he's about to die, or when Isaac is about to die. And Isaac or Jacob and Rebekah trick Isaac into giving Jacob the blessing, even though it was supposed to go to Esau. And then this is what happens in verse 41 of chapter 27. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessings with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. And so this starts this war between Jacob and Esau. And this hatred, it doesn't just stop with Jacob and Esau, but it continues on for generation and generation and generation for thousands of years. That's how much these two hated each other. And if we keep reading in the, uh, the Old Testament, we find out that Jacob is the father of the Israelites, um, and Esau is the, the father of Edom, who are known as the Edomites. And we're going to see those as we go through our our information this morning. After this happens, um, you remember that the Israelites, they're enslaved in Egypt. They're kept captive there for 500 years. And Edom leaves this, and they go and eventually dwell in the land of Edom that I showed you on the map uh, just a little bit earlier. And so we fast forward 500 years after their captivity, and they're let go out of Egypt, and now they're wandering through the wilderness for 40 years. And they wander, and they wander, and eventually... They, they land on the border of Edom, this kingdom of Edom. And Moses and the Israelites, they've wandered for years and years and years, and they're finally uh, about to get up into this promised land, but they have to get through that area right there. And this area is owned and is conquered by the Edomites. And so they go to the king of the Edomites, and they say, can we have passage through the land? Please, we won't touch anything, we won't do anything to it we'll pay back whatever we need to. Um, it's gonna save them a lot of time and suffering. They're traveling with hundreds of thousands of people, uh, people, if not millions of people, and trying to have, get food and water for that many people and, and travel with kids, and, and it's, it's tough. And they say, if we can just go up through your land right there, that couple 40, 50, 60 miles, whatever it is, it's gonna save us a lot of heartache, a lot of suffering. So they go to the kingdom of Edom, And this is what they beg him. He says, "'Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through the field or vineyard or drink water from a well. We will go along the king's highway. We will not turn aside to the right hand, to the left, until we've passed through your territory. But Edom said to him, "'You shall not pass through, lest I come out with the sword against you.' And the people of Israel said to him, "'We will go up by the highway. If we drink of your water, I and my livestock, then I'll pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more.' But he said, "'You shall not pass through,' And Edom came out against them with a large army and with a strong force. And so that hatred that we saw with Jacob and Esau, it's continued. 500 years later, this is where we're at. They, these descendants still hate each other so much that they wouldn't even just let them pass through their land without, without a struggle. And so because of that, um, they have to wander some more, and they have to go around this big mountainous territory that the Edomites owned, and inhabited, and it takes them years and years and lots of struggle to get up through that um, with all these people, and very difficult on them. And then after this, we fast forward another thousand years, and this hatred still continues, and it goes on through all of the different kings that Israel has in both Israel, in, yeah, in Israel and in Judah, and they continue to have hostile dealings. Pretty much every king had something to do with the Edomites, and it was never good, so then we get to the year 800 BC and you remember the Assyrians and the Assyrians are, are making the southward expansion of their territory and they move down into Judah and they actually incorporate uh, the kingdom of Edom and Edom becomes a vassal state of Assyria. So they're under Assyrian rule, but they're still, they have their own control over their territory. They still run it. They're just a state of Assyria and they make life hard. For, for the kingdom of Judah, and um, they make life hard for, for the Israelites, um, God's people here. We fast forward again to uh, when Babylon takes over, and Babylon is taking over Assyria and moving southwestern into Judah, and Judah hadn't been captured by the Assyrians, but when Babylon takes over, you remember the, the whole exile out of Judah and out of Jerusalem to Babylon, and The Bible records this about that um, as Jerusalem is being destroyed. In Psalms 137, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. And Jerusalem, to to the Israelites, to the people of God, that was it. That was God on earth. The temple was God on earth. That was their most sacred possession that they had to resemble God on earth. And they loved it. And, and to hear your enemy, to hear this, the descendants of, of Esau saying, tear it down to its foundation. Lay it bare. Take it down. That's how much hatred these people had with, for each other. They hated each other with a passion. That's our setting for Obadiah. 1,500 years of people hating each other and having nothing but contempt for each other. Ultimately, though, Israel was the children of God. And Edom was the enemy of God's people. Therefore, Edom is the enemy of God. And that's our setting for this. And it's, it's really difficult to determine a specific time period for the book of Obadiah, but it, it really has no bearing on the message um, that God is trying to, to portray to these people through this prophecy. And that message is, you're going to be destroyed. Edom is going to meet destruction and be punished. So we're going to go through this. There's only 21 verses, um, and we're we're going to skip through this pretty quickly, um, but it's not a hard read. And so we start out with the vision of Obadiah. He says, Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We've heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. And so God doesn't waste any time. I mean, verse. One and two, he's declaring war on Edom. And, and it makes me think about a declaration of war. The U.S. has declared war 11 different times, the last being in World War II. And you, you think about when a declaration of war is made, that's all you can think about. That's all that happens. Everything is focused on this wartime effort. And when God declares war on someone, it's a bad thing. It's, you know you're going to be punished. You know, you know you're going to be destroyed. And that's what happens here. God declares war on Edom. And real quick, I want to go look at uh, Second Chronicles. This is what happened to the last people that God declared war on, or an example of that. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, two other tribes around uh, the Israelites and the Edomites, together with some of the Muonites, came to fight against Jehoshaphat. The moment they began their shouts and praises, the Lord set an ambush against the Ammonites, Moabites, and the inhabitants of Mount Seir. And Mount Seir is one of the, it's the capital of the Edomites, who came to fight against Judah, and they were defeated. The Ammonites and the Moabites turned against the inhabitants of Mount Seir and completely annihilated them. When they had finished with their, the inhabitants of Seir, they helped destroy each other. And so God creates this destruction. Not only does he do the destroying, but he has other people do that for them. And these people who thought they were allies with each other end up destroying each other. And this wouldn't have been that long ago. This would have been maybe a couple hundred years prior to when the book of Obadiah was written. And this story that we read here would have been told. The people of Edom would remember this story. They would know that this happened and they'd remember that when God declares war on someone, when he says he's going to, to destroy someone, he means it. And this is evidence of that. It's a, it would be a scary thing for one of God's prophets to, to write something like he did to the, to the Edomites. At the end of verse 2, he says, Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. And you look at that word small in Hebrew, and it means insignificant. You don't matter. No one cares who you are. And, and to the, to the Edomites, that's, a, that's probably the scariest thing that could happen to them. They were a nation that was so filled with pride and arrogance. That was one of the worst things that could happen to them, and that's why he says what he does in verse 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though you nest your nest is set among the stars, From there, I will bring you down, declares the Lord. And this lofty dwelling um, that it talks about here, they were a mountainous people. They lived high up in the mountains and they were protected by the mountains. And they knew this. They knew that time and time again, people have tried to destroy them and they couldn't do it. No one could overthrow this territory and and they thought they were safe. You go back to the story of, of the Madoff investors. They thought they were safe. They thought that they were making money and here we find out they're not safe. That's a false sense of hope that they have. And this is what's kept them safe for so long. This is pictures of, of the journey as you go up to what was Mount Seir, what's now known as Petra. Um, and you would go through these rocks, and there's people all along the top of these, of these rocks that would be trying to destroy you as you go up to this, this city. And so it was a really hard city to try and penetrate. It was a fortress, And once you trekked up through all these caverns to get up there, this is the top of that mountain. You've probably seen pictures of Petra. and Petra, all this rock formation was completed after the Edomites. But this is where they dwelled. And and if you've seen Indiana Jones and and the uh, last crusade, this is where it was filmed. And uh, it was a very protected area, a very protected place. And they knew that, and they were arrogant about that. But regardless of that, God promises to bring them down. And not only would he bring them down, but just like he did before, he's going to use their allies to do that. And we find that out in verse 7. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Basically, the allies that you think you have aren't your allies. These people that you think you can trust You can't trust them. And they're they're going to deceive you. They're going to be the ones that destroy you. Even the people who you're eating with, they're the ones that are setting a trap for you. And basically, he tells the Edomites, you can't trust anyone, not even your own people. Verse 8, Will I not on that day declare the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman. And Teman is just a city there in Edom. Um, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. That word slaughter is a terrifying thing. And, and I'm sure that these Edomites, as they're hearing God's prophet tell them this, they're thinking, what is going on? What, how, what did we do to deserve this? Why does God have it out for us so much? And he, God answers that in verse 10. God says, Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you. You shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster. In the day of his calamity, do not not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. And so he goes through this list of things. These are what you did. Because of all this, because you hated my people, because you gloated over my people, because you took advantage of my people, that's why you're going to be destroyed. That's why I have it out for you. And this would scare the Edomites, of course. I mean, this this is going to bring tremendous fear to them to know that God is going to slaughter you and slaughter all of your people. But with this, it would also bring tremendous hope to God's people, knowing that he was there to protect you. And in verse 15, we get this pivot verse. Um, God has been, up until verse 14, he's been prophesying about the destruction of Edom. And now in verse 15, he widens his gaze to a much bigger area it says for the day of the lord is near upon all the nations as you've done it shall be done to you your deeds shall return on your own head for as you've drunk on my holy mountain so all the nations shall drink continually they shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been so as you read through the book of obadiah you get this sense of justice it says as you've done it shall be done to you that's justice for the evil that you've done Evils going to be done to you. You're going to pay for it. These nations, Edom specifically, that we've read about, they've used and abused and mistreated God's people for so long, and now it's time for them to pay for it. And God says, I'm going to wipe them out. But, verse 17, But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape. It shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire. The house of Joseph a flame; and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. There shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. There's going to be those who escape this terrible judgment. There will be those who survive and those who don't. The ones who survive will do so because of God. The ones who are destroyed will do so because of the same God. And he can, after verse 18, there's three more verses. We're not going to spend time with those. He just basically goes through and says what nations are going to inhabit what areas. So what does the book of Obadiah mean for us? What did what we just read, how does that have any bearing on us? And I think it boils down to one thing. The person who reads this can feel one of two things. The words of Obadiah can either be seen as a tremendous comfort or tremendous pain. Tremendous pain if you're the people of Edom, people that have persecuted God's people for so long because you're going to be destroyed, or tremendous comfort if you're one of God's children. If you've obeyed Him and you've been a child of His, you're going to have tremendous comfort. And I think the same language that we read in Obadiah and kind of the same sentiment that we see here. It's seen in Peter's writings as well. And as we get to 1 Peter chapter 3, that's where we're going to spend the the majority of the last half of our sermon this morning. But Peter is writing to a group of, of Christians who've just been persecuted. They've been slandered. They've been made fun of. They've had to deal with a lot. And as we get into 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter has some advice for them and he calls them to be different, to be a different people, people that aren't of the world. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, as he opens up, he quotes from, or as we open up, he quotes from Psalms chapter 34. He says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, let his lips and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And that's what reminds me, of what we just read in Obadiah. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil and who wish evil on God's people. And that's Peter's encouragement to these people is God is with you. God is setting his face against people who do evil against you. They're going to face punishment just like the Edomites did. And after this, in verse 13, he tells the Christians, now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so in verse 12, he says, God's face is set against people who do evil against you, against the people of God. And then he says, you're gonna suffer, but you're suffering for righteousness' sake. You're suffering for for a good thing. And so Peter gives perspective with this. And the perspective is that you're blessed when you suffer. When the world persecutes you and slanders you, you're blessed. And Peter's writing to these people to encourage them to know that even though you're suffering, you're going to be blessed. And and he gives them hope um, through this writing. And we go on. And and you, you look at the entire Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation, the entire Bible is about hope. And you think about the Edomites and, and the Israelites. The entire Bible is about hope, those who have hope and those who don't have hope. The Israelites had hope because they were God's people. The Edomites didn't have hope because they weren't God's people. And I'm sure that the Israelites, up until the, up until the point of, of Obadiah when it was written, they felt some sort of hopelessness We're going to be destroyed. We're being carried off to Babylon. We don't have Jerusalem anymore. We don't have that temple anymore. It's hopeless. But God writes this to them to show them, no, you do have hope. If you're you're a child of mine, you do have hope. They needed to understand, the Israelites needed to understand that Edom is not in charge. I am in charge the enemy will not win. And hope is such a foundational thing to the Christian faith. And I hope that you have, have hope. And this morning, I wanna spend a little bit of time as we finish talking about what hope is. In 2009, and, and this was a study put out by the CDC, and it's, it's tracked um, sadness and hopelessness for a long time. And in 2009, 26% of teens reported feeling persistently sad and hopeless. And, and that's a high number, one out of four teens felt that. And you go up to 2019, same study, it's gone up to 37%, 37%. So now we're, we're up above a third of teens feeling persistently sad and hopeless. And, and everyone wants to blame the pandemic, Oh, COVID, it, it put us in our houses, we couldn't get out and we have no hope because of that. But this is long before COVID, this is two years before that happened. And this trend is already happening. And then you fast forward to last year, same study, 44% of teens report feeling persistently sad and hopeless. It's not going down. I think the pandemic probably had something to do with an increase there, but we were already on the uptick there. Hopelessness is becoming more pervasive in our our society. And so think about you. Where do you stand with hope? Do you have hope? Are you a part of this 44% statistic? That's almost one out of two. One out of two people feel persistently sad and hopeless. Where do you stand with that? People have no hope because they have nothing to hope for. And people don't want to hear about Christ. They don't want to hear about the love that Christ has for them. They don't care about loving the way that Jesus loves. They don't care about a future with Jesus. And I hope that as you look at your life, I hope you realize If you're in this 44% statistic of being sad all the time and and having no hope, something's got to change. You need to have something to hope for. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And so what Paul's dealing here with is people that, that are saying the resurrection didn't happen that Christ didn't raise from the dead. And Paul is saying, no, it, it did happen. And, but if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we, we need to be pitied because we have no hope. But Christ did raise from the dead, and because of that, we do have hope. And you have hope in, in the next life because of a risen Savior. And your life needs to emulate that. It needs to show to other people that I've got hope, and this is what my hope is in. The world has nothing to live for, and the world's angry at that, and it hates you for that, and that's why the world slanders and persecutes you. And he says here in in verse 19, if you only have hope in this life, and you're not worried and not concerned about the next life and the future hope with Jesus, you're to be pitied. You're a pitiful person. It's a sad way to live, sad way to go through life but Christ did raise from the dead. And because of that, we have hot hope in the afterlife and not just in this life. Peter goes on to write in chapter four, he says, for there, are already, for there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on an unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing the lawless and lawless idolatry. They are surprised that you don't join in the, in the same flood of wild living and they slander you. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. Sound familiar? Has this happened to you? And and you can see this going on in the United States now, but this has happened for thousands of years. You go back to the Corinthian life, this was happening. Roman life, it was happening. These people were experiencing it. The Christians were going through and they were seeing this happen and they were being persecuted and slandered because of it the hopeless participate in all of these different things because they have nothing to hope for. It temporarily gives them pleasure in a hopeless world. And as Christians, we have a much stronger, firm, permanent hope that we have to hope for. And that's why we don't participate in all these things. And, and I think about going back to my high school career. And I mean, there is tremendous pressure to participate in this kind of stuff and drunkenness. I mean, that, that's just one out of the list that Peter gave there but I remember having tremendous pressure to, to participate in parties and things like that. And that's what this passage describes. And when the world tries to get you to participate in your sin and you won't join them, you're doing something right. You're doing something good. That means you're doing it correctly. For, and for the most part, Christians aren't going to suffer for what they won't do. They're going to... They, Christians are not going to suffer for things that they uh, participate in. Rather, they're going to suffer for things that they won't do. And that's exactly what Peter's saying here. And and you think about in your life, I mean, as Christians, we volunteer our time. You're not going to be persecuted for that. I mean, the world looks at that and says, that's a a good thing to have. You volunteer your money. You, You donate to the poor. You donate to different causes. You're not going to be persecuted for that. And, and, and you do all these nice things for the world, you're not going to be persecuted for that. But when you won't do something that the world wants you to participate in, that's when you're going to be slandered. That's when you're going to be persecuted. And when you won't do it, and the world wonders, why aren't they doing that? That means you're doing something right. You're doing it, you're doing it correctly. You're going to suffer because you won't participate in parties and unrestrained behavior and evil desires and things like that. And the result in Peter's day, as we just read, read, was slander and persecution. And you can read, pick up pretty much any book in the New Testament, you can read how, how these people were persecuted. And they were talking evil of people in First Peter, as, as Peter's writing. And he continues on in verse 17. He says, For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And, and the reason for that is, in the previous verse, Uh, that we read, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, the ears are open to their prayer, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And it goes back to hope. Those who have hope and have something to hope for, you're gonna suffer for doing good and you're gonna be okay with it because you have promise of something coming better. You're not living in a hopeless world because you're living in a hopeless world with future hope of a promised life with, with Christ. And, and the world looks at, at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17 and thinks that's crazy. Why in the world would I want to suffer for doing good? Who, who does that? Why would anybody want to do that? And you go back to the context that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. They're going to pay for it. People who do evil, at some point, they're going to pay for it. And we endure suffering because of hope. The world persecutes, it slanders, because it has no hope. And that's essentially what the, the book of Obadiah is about. And as we reflect on the book of Obadiah and the Edomites, the Edomites were wiped out. Um, around 400 B.C., the Nabateans came in, wiped the Edomites out, um, and then around 68 A.D., as, as Rome is moving in and they conquer this area, they lay waste to this area again, and, and there's no more Edomites, there's no more Nabateans, and... No descendants. And so God gives the Israelites hope by prophesying about this and giving, and giving them a future outlook of these people are going to be wiped out. They're going to pay for that. And then 2,500 years later, where we stand today, how does reading the book of Obadiah and understanding this prophet and understanding the prophecy that God is going to destroy the Edomites, how does that have any bearing on our life? Yeah, we can read the story. We can understand that it's true. We can see what happened afterwards and the rest of the story of, of how the Edomites are wiped out, but how does that have any bearing on us? My question is, where is Edom now? It's gone. It's destroyed. There's no descendants. Where are God's people now? There's a room full of them here. There's rooms full of them throughout the world. Israel gave descendant to Christ Christ purchased his church and the church is worldwide now two totally different outcomes to the story there Christ established his church in an everlasting people and so we we look at 1 Peter chapter 3 and we understand now why we have to suffer for righteousness sake and and that's the point that that Peter's making here he quotes psalms and he shows you have hope you have a promise not necessarily in the world but in the future world to come. And in verse 18, he tells them what that hope is. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That hope is that Christ brought us to God. And that's, that's such an awesome statement. That Christ suffered, even though he was righteous, we were unrighteous, because he wanted us to be brought closer to God. And that, that should make you, I mean, it should give you the jitters inside because of that. And it's, it's such an awesome thing to have hope because of what Christ did for us. There's no greater hope. I saw in the news on Monday, this last Monday, it was what we call, what the world calls Blue Monday. And I don't know if you, you saw that article or not. Um, but it's the saddest day of the year, and this psychologist came up with this formula in 2005 to figure out what day is the saddest day of the year, and who knows why he did that, Um, but this formula looks impressive, and it, it has a lot of calculations on weather and time of the year, and where's your motivation at, and there's a lot of different things that go into this, and There may be some truth to this. Yeah, it's not as fun to go outside when it's cold and dark and snowy outside. It's a lot better in the summer when it's hot and sunshine. There may be some truth to that. But this world is looking for happiness under every rock. I mean, trying to find happiness anywhere that it can and hope anywhere that it can. And it's not working. We've gone from 23% or whatever, 22% up to 45%. On that. We're going the wrong way. And, and I realize as Christians, every day is not going to be a perfect day. And, and there's going to be days where you have some hopelessness. But on the other side of that, we've got to have this permanent hope. And just realizing that that life is we're living this life for the hope of a future life. And so as we wind this study down, I want to go over just a few practical applications. Um, as you go through your Christian life, of maybe how you can combat some, some days when you're not feeling super hopeful. First thing, make a gratitude list. It's, it's really difficult to not have hope when you're listing out all the things that you're thankful for. It makes you realize that, that God is really looking out for you. Do something nice for someone, focus on other people. When you're focusing on other people, it's a lot more difficult to play the Eeyore character and, and, and figuring out that there's nothing in life worth living if you're, if you're focusing on other people. Eat healthy and exercise. And, and I realize there's not a whole lot of biblical uh, Scripture for that, but when you, when you eat better and you sleep better, you feel better. And your, your mind can be changed because of that. Meditate on Scripture. When you're in the Word and you're reading and you focus on that and you spend a dedicated portion of every day meditating on that, it's gonna make you think more about that rather than thinking about, oh, I have no hope. Pray for others that are hurting. Again, when you're focusing on other people and you're focusing on on maybe their problems and how how their life is in in bad shape right now, it gives you perspective um, as you pray for them. Think about heaven. Have you ever just let your mind wander and, and, and think about how amazing that day will be and all the things you might possibly see and, and being in the presence of Jesus and being in the presence of God and being in the presence of the Holy Spirit and all these former people, Moses and Abraham, and being just being there with them and the, the wonderful things you're going to see. Just let your mind wander and think about what's future, what's going to be coming in the next life. And then be around Christian people. When you're around Christian people and the church of God and the family of God, it gives you a lot more hope than being around people that are in this world. Yes, you need to be around people in this world. We need to be spreading the gospel. But your focus in this life should want to be around other people, other people of the family of God. Our last verse this morning, Romans 15, verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Not just have some hope, not just a little hope, but abound in hope. And I hope that as you go through life, your life will abound in hope. That people will see the hope that you have, and they'll ask you about it, and they'll want to be a part of that. This morning, I I pray that you have that hope. Not hope in the world, but hope in Christ, hope in the future. If you're a member of the body of Christ here, you have that hope. If you've been baptized, if you're a Christian, you have that hope. But if you're here this morning and, and you haven't believed in Christ and you haven't been baptized and you're not living a Christian life, you don't have that hope. And this morning, I hope that that if that is you and you find yourself in that position, I hope you'll change it. The church and, and the invitation song that we're going to offer here in just a minute, that's the purpose of that. It's so that hopefully something we've said this morning, it'll touch you and you'll realize I've got to change something in this in my life. And there's, that invitation is open all the time. If that's something you don't want to do this morning, but you want to think about it, and you you want to pray about it, and talk to the elders about it, and study with people, and then come to that conclusion, the invitation is always open. So this morning, we're going to offer that invitation, and I hope that if you have something in your life you need to change, I hope you'll do that. Won't you come while we stand and sing?